Well, we are looking forward to an incredible day in the Word of God. And I've been looking forward to this day for many, many moons. And uh, this morning we have two brilliant minds uh, that are going to be uh, presenting here. First of all is going to be uh, Reverend Tim Haddon is going to be presenting an apostolic response to biblical illiteracy. And then immediately following uh, a time of questions, peer review, and critique, uh, Reverend Ken Bow is going to be presenting a biblical definition of separation. So we are looking forward to having a rich, tremendous time in the Word of God. Why don't we just lift our hands and lift our voices and let's pray together right now that God would bless this place with his presence and his glory and his unction. Father, I pray for these presenters that they have clarity of mind, the unction of the Holy Ghost. God, fill this place with your glory and your power and your spirit. Give you all the praise and all the glory. We ask it. Oh, let's lift our voices. Go ahead and praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God, we magnify your name. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Good morning, everyone. Hey, that sounds like a hearty good morning today. Looking forward to the presentations all throughout today and into this evening and thoroughly enjoyed the part that I was able to be a part of last evening uh, from Brother Galindo. What a tremendous uh, presentation he made and thoroughly enjoyed the interaction and dialogue following uh, his presentation last evening. Just so that we can set things and do a little housekeeping, I just want to report that I just spoke with my daughter and she is fine but sore and walked away from a major accident on the 405 in L.A. So we thank the Lord for that today. This morning, it is a distinct honor and privilege to uh, bring our next presenter to the floor, and we'll be giving you some instructions at the conclusion of his presentation this morning uh, about the various questions and peer review and critique that you may have, and so that we'll be able to do that with a sense of decorum and allow the the presenter to actually use their expertise and drill down deep into uh, their paper and what they have researched. This morning is my delight to present to you Reverend Timothy Haddon, father of three and the husband of Amber, resides in Portland, Oregon, where he acts as a metropolitan missionary, establishing a thriving apostolic Pentecostal church. He graduated summa cum laude from the Hope Hope International University with a Bachelor of Arts in Christian Ministry and is pursuing a degree or an MA degree in addiction counseling. Reverend Haddon has been an avid student of the Word of God, writing extensive collaborative commentary that is to be published on several literary fronts. His love for biblical languages, culture, and antiquity, and his fervent passion for careful biblical exegesis lends towards a methodical interpretation of the Bible that emphasizes Scripture must interpret Scripture. He has authored a commentary on the book of Exodus, and it is available on Amazon. This morning, it is my delight to present Reverend Haddon as he presents to us 
an apostolic response to biblical illiteracy. Can we welcome him this morning? Well, good morning, everybody. We have the nine o'clock slot, which means coffee's just starting to kick in, and uh, everybody's trying to wake up. Anybody enjoy what you heard yesterday? I thoroughly enjoyed Dr. Galindo and the things that he had to say. What we're doing here is something to me that is very pertinent and I believe very crucial in the kingdom of God and something that I believe we ought to facilitate more of. And uh, with that, My hat's off to the Cornerstone Church for all the time they've spent. Uh, This church not only puts on this, but uh, they put on different conferences throughout the year. And they are working tirelessly to give us and facilitate what we have today. And uh, so I'm very thankful for Brother and Sister Mayo and this church. Now, I'm just going to uh, slip into this the way that I would teach this anywhere else, and uh, which means it's going to carry the own flavor of how I'd like to teach this. I am going to preface to you that I'm not going to read verbatim uh, in, the word, in, in the words you have in your uh, book, but I will say that we will tag some of the things that are there, but to kind of gain a flow, we will hit several portions of this and uh, move along. Let me first clarify that in talking about an apostolic response to biblical literacy, illiteracy, that we have come a very long way from the papyrus codices of the second century and the stained glass windows that were initially designed to facilitate the true illiterate of the day. And since the explosion of the Gutenberg revolution of the printing press, which did 10 copies a day, the Bible's been translated into roughly 2,500 languages. And it's been estimated that there are, at least, there have been reproduced 6 billion copies of the Bible. And so when America was founded, it's important to understand that the language of the newly established constitutional republic speaks volumes of the foundational tenets that undergird its revolutionary development. And to understand this, we have to recognize that the societal moorings of the fledgling nation that we live in today owes a lot of credit to the homage and allegiance that was paid to the scriptures by pioneering men and women who sought to bring about a new world. You can see it in the great orations of the statesmen and the impassioned leaders of the colonial period that brought about the thematic shadows and the vocabulary of the Bible that began to take center stage in the American society as we know it. Without question, this is a direct quote in there, America was a nation 
shaped by the Bible's laws, the moral principles, and the holy expectations of the Word of God. In fact, if you go and look at the impact the Bible has had on various fronts in society, it has had a tremendous impact on literature. For example, Hemingway, Dickens, Melville, Shakespeare, Milton, and Steinbeck, most of the classic authors of American society and society abroad have a deep and solid foundational respect for the Word of God. It's in the government. Even today, leaders are sworn in with their hand placed on a Bible. So it's had deep societal impact. Education. You go back to the 1800s where the the primers that were used in educational schools, and it's only been since really the last, probably in the last hundred years, have we seen such a societal shift away from the Word of God as a benchmark for the foundation of our culture. But the early primers of education in America were typically and thoroughly uh, heavily impacted by a biblical aspect and foundation. The arts. If you do a study in the arts. Da Vinci, The Last Supper. Michelangelo's The Fall of Adam. And so you could go through the arts, the literature, and various other facets of American and even global society and understand that the Bible has had a deep and thorough impact on the society that we live in. Unfortunately, even though it was part of the formative shaping of the society that we live in, after three and a half centuries of common standing in America, the Bible serving as the pinnacle and the apex of most thought, most art, most literature, unfortunately after three and a half centuries of common standing in America, biblical literacy has undergone a precipitous decline. This decline, as reported by several research groups, Barna, Pew, those all can be named, it has continued in its downward trend. And the shift of societal secularization continues to further ensconce itself within the framework of a pluralistic postmodern era. And now, just to face it and and call it for what it is, we are reaching epidemical stages. And there has to become a panacea for the precipitous decline of biblical literacy in our day today. And that is part of why we are here today. And that's part of why this subject is being presented. We have to answer the decline of biblical literacy. So if you were to begin to glance face value at the statistical results of biblical sales across the world, one, myself included in some of the research that I was doing, you could very easily be deceived by the statistical results that are given to you about about Bible sales, digital and otherwise. They have actually said that there's been no suffering of biblical sales. I want you to get that. There's been no suffering 
of biblical sales. In fact, with the digital medium of what Brother Galindo talked about, biblical sales have now skyrocketed. Now people can get multiple translations at the, at the touch of their finger, and truth has now got a touch point in a digital society, and, and, and there's been a skyrocketing of biblical sales. And that can be deceiving. When you read that, that can be deceiving. But don't be deceived. While the Bible maintains the best-selling numbers in both physical and digital sales, the results continue to reveal that there is an exponential decline in biblical literacy. And in this case, sales do not equal or authenticate biblical comprehension or readership. And furthermore, modern research can be deceiving, especially when they celebrate, and this is directly out of, a celebrated statistical research company, Barna, especially when they celebrate the millennial uptick of readership. This is done by Barna. And I'm going to give you an example of how they project in our modern day, in our modern time, about how we ought to celebrate biblical readership. They say that there's a reported 44% of 13 to 17 years of age of teenagers that are reading their Bibles three or four times a year. And the underlying consensus of the report is, quote, that teens have a deep respect for the Bible and care about its relevance to the world in which they inhabit. You start looking closer. You start to try to understand what these statistics are really saying. And you begin to realize that the scrutiny is revealing that only 3% of these teenagers that have been surveyed can easily be attributed to daily biblical readership. So they celebrate on one hand 44% that are reading their Bible and catch this three or four times a year. Now that doesn't even qualify if that just means they're opening their Bible and reading it. They don't qualify that. It just could be taking a text, reading a text, and closing their Bible. But it's not implying that they're reading their Bible fully three or four times a year. So they're celebrating this millennial uptick, 44%. And yet only 3% have actually been reported to be reading their Bibles on a daily basis. That is a staggering statistic. Think about that. Yet, the lack of readership, and I want to really lay this foundation for this, is we could talk about the lack of readership. And everybody here would, for the most part, acknowledge that biblical knowledge is sparse because people are not reading the Bible. I agree. But the lack of readership alone does not stand as the sole reason for the epidemic of biblical illiteracy. No, the less discussed reality of biblical illiteracy is the pattern of biblical ignorance among those who would be, would be professing to read their Bibles on a regular basis. Did you get what I just said? The greatest problem is among those that profess to be reading their Bibles on a regular basis. This as expressed by one author, said it has produced a scourge of biblical illiteracy. 
And this biblical ignorance owes quite a bit to the religious syncretism that has undermined the absolute truth of the God-breathed scriptures. And professing Christians captured by modern and postmodern philosophies and influences have begun reading the scriptures through a subjective lens. And in, in turn, this subjective lens has led to a systematic abuse in both translation and interpretation. Because of this, merely advocating for the increase of biblical readership today would not be enough to reverse the decline in biblical illiteracy since, as we will discuss, the way the Bible is being read plays into the destructive realities of biblical illiteracy. And so, we have to, with that in mind, understand that illiteracy in and of itself is something which is defined generally as the inability to read and write. But when we discuss biblical illiteracy, we are not saying that people don't have the ability to read or write. So it means something different when we discuss illiteracy, when we connotate it with a biblical readership. And so to kind of give you a benchmark of what I would define and what I believe the definition of biblical literacy ought to be is it ought to be the lack of familiarity with the Bible rather than the lack of the ability to read it. It is the unfortunate yet intentional neglect of Scripture. And so biblical literacy, as you have in your papers, can best be described as one's ability to correctly read and understand the Bible in a way that corresponded or corresponds to authorial intent. As such, being biblically literate is not so much about having the ability to read the Bible, but it's the ability to engage the Word of God in such a way that comprehends the meta-narratives, the stories, the overarching stories that are woven throughout its many stories and themes. This idea is what lends to the most disturbing result to me. And in my opinion, as we will outline, a major causative agency that lends towards the decline of biblical literacy or, as I've defined, the neglect of Scripture. While people are reading the Bible less, those who are reading the Bible are reading it in such a way that the Bible is being divorced from authorial intent and the meta narratives of the Bible are being compartmentalized into disproportionate and disjointed stories and belief systems. Such biblical illiteracy, one author writes, leads to a fragmented understanding of the Bible. And believers who are only minimally exposed to the Bible find few unifying themes that tie pertinent characters and truths together. In other words, they often find little consistency between the two testaments. In other words, the greater whole of Christendom, of whatever denomination, take your pick, Christendom in whole and in general, and I'm going to put apostolic Pentecostalism within this margin 
okay? The Bible that was once viewed as a living document is becoming dismembered and disjointed and rejoined in ways that would make Mary Shelley's literary Frankenstein appear almost human. One writer, when I was studying and looking at this this morning, said that the way people are doing the Bible and reading the Bible is it's become the religious equivalent of soundbite journalism. As a result of this biblical fragmentation, the Bible becomes nothing more than a fragmented, arbitrary document that is filtered through the societal norms and religious bias, and as a result, is usurped as the objective authority that governs the holistic whole of the human being. Furthermore, the usurpation of biblical authority propagates the rise of of a myriad of, of anemic doctrines and the rise of religious pluralism birthed out of freakishly fragmented theological disciplines. Weighing in on this epidemic, postmodern epidemic, and talking about postmodern pluralism, one writer that is a postmodern theologian wrote that, quote, theology is intractably fragmented owing to the fact that we have gradually abandoned the goal of attempting to establish an objective reading of the Bible. And we have, as a result, stranded theology in the quagmire of a thousand different frameworks. You see, these frameworks of theology that that writer James K. Smith wrote about, that quagmire of a thousand different frameworks has produced a Christian community that is, quote, so fragmented by biblical illiteracy and denominationalism that it is becoming a contradiction to what the church is supposed to represent. And so a lot of this, for us to deal with this, to talk about this, to comprehend that fragmentation is leading us the way that we're Reading the Bible has a tremendous import upon biblical illiteracy. We have to understand that there is, in this present day, a tremendous degree of textual malpractice that is occurring. This this systematic or symptomatic fragmentation that I discussed and talked about that has created the contradiction of what the church is supposed to become has found its way into the pulpits of modern American churches. When I wrote about this, I understood that there's no way to address biblical literacy without incorporating the preacher into that biblical literacy. I tell my church at home that I'm an equal opportunity offender. And truth is an equal opportunity offender. It will offend everyone. But if we are going to rationalize and find a way to get a panacea for this epidemic, we're going to have to be honest with ourselves. And so it's made its way into the pulpits of modern American churches. And in an effort to relativize and abbreviate textual truth for the sake of an appealing sermon, exegesis 
is being overtaken by eisegesis. And the results become, as mentioned before, disjointed and dismembered parts torn from the unified whole. It's like a surgeon that utilizes blunted and rusty scalpels. So also are the supposed practitioners of the word of God making jagged cuts that show little regard to the anatomical whole of authorial intent. If I had my physical Bible on my hand right now, I'd hold it up. And if we were to explain how we are attempting to get out of Scripture things it doesn't say, we would be tearing that thing apart in American society. And so this blunted edge of contextual and exegetical malpractice has produced generational errors. Biblical literacy is not just today's problem. It was a systemic spread that happened generations prior. And we are now dealing in, in an age to where anything is found in readership at the, at the touch of a finger. We are dealing with the epidemical stage of biblical illiteracy. But it's not just this generation's fault. But we have to deal with it. And so we've produced generational heirs to a systemic spread of doctrinal positions, shallow beliefs, and untenable viewpoints that cannot be substantiated, either textually or principally, thus resulting in a further fragmented and divisive culture that often sacrifices scriptural objectives for either a hyper-pharisaical position that will make disciples, quote, twofold more the, the child of hell or the materialistically obese reality of a spiritually emaciated Laodicean culture. Nowhere, one author states, in the total curriculum of theological studies has the student been more deserted and left to his own devices. Another pastor in Birmingham made the statement that churches have, quote, lowered the bar for biblical and theological literacy by treating it as something for professionals. Equating serious engagement with scriptures for the seminaries alone, not for the local church. And he said, because of this, this has impoverished both the seminary and the church. And so, as a result of this, myopic leaders are producing myopic congregations that teeter between the sacred and the secular. Unable to find equilibrium of a pneumatologically oriented theology that comprehends the totality of an objective biblical framework, the only remedy, the only remedy for the fatalistic decline in biblical illiteracy is a church that is grounded in a theological and hermeneutical paradigm of both, quote, dynamic and doctrine. 
Simply put, no other religious entity outside of the apostolic Pentecostal church can respond with such efficacy to the Babel-like fragmentation of the word of God that is caused by the rapid decline of biblical literacy. And so how do we respond to this decline? In response to this rapid decline of biblical literacy, it is important to utilize the foundational tenets realized within the monotheistic and monogamous mandate communicated in the Shema. And in this case, I am incorporating Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Quoted in part by Jesus in the New Testament, the Shema's influence was further picked up by the Apostle Paul. Since its inauguration in the Torah, the Shema stands out as an important conceptual foundation upon which the endurance of Tanakhic writings could be secured, thus serving within the scope of textual and oral preservation as a template for transmission. And so, to serve as the template for transmission, the, the Shema serving as the distillation of the entire collective of God's articulated covenantal responsibilities, the Shema lays the foundational basis for which Torah literacy would successfully undergo generational transmission. It was at the core tenets of what the Shema represented was the ability and what God understood as finding a way to keep the word of God, the actions of God, and the things that the law facilitated. It served as the foundational basis upon which that would be secured generationally. Echoing the sentiments of Joshua 1.8 that quote, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. The Shema was a clairvoyant command whose purposes served as more than just a monolithic call to exclusive monotheism. It was a call that sought to ensure the preservation of a distinct cultural future that was undergirded by a people chosen by God as the standard bearers of truth and the forerunners of a salvific schema whose designs preempted the dismal fall of humankind. The longevity and the success of the Torah could only be secured through a generational transmission made possible by, quote, teaching, which is an intensive Hebrew verb that means to teach incisively. Not just teach, but to teach incisively. The illusion of this word in the Hebrew, this intensive Hebrew verb, implies that the recipients of the Torah were to engrave its words and concepts upon the future subsequent generations as an engraver etches words into stone or granite. That's what teaching incisively meant. It's not just teach them, but it's engrave it in their hearts. Make it a part of their future. Make it a part of the way they think and they act and they talk. This would occur and this would be 
facilitated through several various means. First, parents would communicate the deliverance narratives, the covenantal obligations, and various other words of the law to their children, which in turn would lend toward a continual discourse and dialogue regarding the word the words of God that would be further etched into the hearts of their children through the vigilance of heart, mind, and praxis. Such practices promoted an attentiveness to preserving and protecting God's word. Later, Talmudic interventions would develop over time that would consistently ensure that Tanakhic transmission, such as priestly instruction, the development of the sing-song cadence of the Torah virtues realized in the Psalter, and the liturgical education that was propagated through the communal gatherings, scribal systems, and the various Torah revivals that occurred throughout the history of the Jewish nation. God wanted his word to be remembered. You read the Old Testament. The the Old Testament is a book about preservation. It's a book about propagation. It's a book that establishes the responsibility of one generation engraving the, the narratives and the laws and the commitments and the covenants and the realities of what God said to them. And did for them. It was on them. To do this. And I want to just. Deviate from this for a moment. But we are a one God. Apostolic church. And we shout about that. See. Now I'm setting you up. But we sure don't shout as much. About the preservation. Of God's word. You can't divorce the one God monogamous monotheistic mandate of the Shema and divorce it from His commandment to teach it. I told you I'm an equal opportunity offender. And so, all those things that happen, the community gatherings, the scribal systems, the liturgical education... Even if we could do a theology on that sing-song cadence of the Psalter, everything God did was geared to remembering what He said. In many ways, the Shema and its subsequent developments throughout the history of the Jewish nation weave together. And this is going to be my response. They weave together a threefold cord that seeks not only to preserve God's word. We don't have a problem preserving. But ensuring that future generations maintain a scriptural vigilance of heart, mind, and praxis that lends to a solid sense of biblical literacy. In this room... You are part of the apostolic response. 
we leave this room today, we are part of the panacea for this problem. And so the threefold cord of what I believe ought to be the response of the apostolic church begins with, as you find it in the Shema, familial transmission. This has to start in the home. Rich with Hebraic foundations, the family, writes an author, quote, had followed a long trajectory within salvation history starting from being the carrier of the covenant in the Abrahamic covenant to becoming the sphere of eschatological activity when it reached its teleological conclusions in Christ. However, due to the phenomenal growth of the early church, Christianity's acceptance as a state religion, the importance of the family began to recede. I would urge you to do a theological study on the family and the third, fourth, and fifth centuries. The family, prior to the adoption of Christianity as a state religion, served as the focal point for biblical Tanakhic education. This is further established in that subsequent many of the major events between Israel and God, a responsibility for familiar transmission took center stage. The first Passover, eaten in sobriety and haste, was expected to continue in each subsequent generation to come, and quote, when your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service? An opportunity and a means would present itself to tell the story of God's great deliverance from the land of Egypt on the eve of the Passover. These hallowed feasts and festivals developed within the Hebraic home a, quote, rhythm of family life. If you circle something, circle that. Because we have to create a rhythm that is penetrated by the appointed times of holiness. The natural rhythm of life allowed for teachable moments that occurred organically and, in turn, successfully etching God's words and works into the hearts of the children. In this context, quote, education is not for all the teachers here, Sunday school teachers, to hear me right now. Education is not an artificial construct that is imposed upon the child, but rather it grows out of the concrete experiences of the child that waits for the moment when the child is psychologically engaged with the subject. Even today, hinged upon the events of the first Passover, Orthodox Jewish families will undergo the ritualistic search for leaven within the home on Passover's Eve. With candles lit and not a word spoken between the blessing and the finding of the leaven, families engage in a delightful 
yet somber search to find and remove the leaven from the home. Believed in Jewish tradition to have originated via the searching of Jerusalem with candles in Zephaniah 1 and 12, the search for hametz, literally leaven, becomes an activity in the home that reinforced not only the narrative of God's word, but an awareness of the importance of purity and obedience in the home. The success of scriptural permanence rested within the familiar responsibility to develop a natural cadence in the home where, as noted before, the family structure was to impress upon future generations the words of God like an engraver etches words into stone or granite. The heartbeat of Securing the Tanakhic culture of the nation depended upon the consistency of patriarchs, matriarchs, mothers, fathers. Teaching the commandment of God, quote, when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou risest up. Furthermore, God's laws were to be written upon the post of the door and the gates of the home and fastened via phylacteries upon their heads and upon their hands and upon their foreheads, further establishing the necessity of God's words to govern man's mind and man's strength. Likewise today, the Bible must serve. We were talking about technology last night. (laughs) The Bible must serve as the cornerstone of the familial construct and the Bible's narratives, moral guidelines, doctrines, and overall unified theme as parents must be spoken. It must be discussed and taught organically by parents who in turn are consistently developed, aligned, and instructed within the local framework of their church. I have started teaching at home that the dinner table is a very important theology. There are things that we are losing as parents because it is one place that we can push aside the technology. Jesus did a whole lot of teaching over food. Seize that time at the dinner table to talk about what pastor preached. Seize that moment Mothers, to tell your daughters about what ladies' conference talked about. Let's just not talk about how good school was or did you get bullied today. or No, let's talk about the Bible. When thou sittest 
at the table, Deuteronomy said. Okay, I'm, I'm moving towards a rapid close. I've got a little bit of time left. But I do want to issue a clairvoyant call. We have a responsibility as parents. I'm giving an apostolic response to biblical illiteracy. We may not be able to change it in our generation, but if we start now with our kids. And so, parents that are consistently developed, and I want that to be a key. Your source point is your local church. It's your pastor. Okay, you become a conduit of pastoral delivered message. That when pastor says it, you bring it home. And he may preach it in a language your six-year-old doesn't understand. But you can break it down in a language your six-year-old can. So tell him, hey baby, this is what pastor preached about today. He preached about how bad sin is. And there's some people that are making bad decisions right now that are going to get in trouble from their teacher. Baby, the physician, the doctor's not happy with his patient. These are moments that we can bring home. But we have to have that as parents. We have to consistently develop that in alignment and instruction from the local framework of our local church. And so this leads me to the second of the threefold core. The church. How are we going to change biblical illiteracy? First, the family. Second, the church. The church, an organic entity that enjoys a global community, first finds precedent within the framework of the tabernacle erected during the wilderness journey of Israel. As the tribal encampments were divinely structured to correspond to the centrality of the tabernacle, so also is the modern home to to be divinely structured to correspond to the centrality of the local church that also envisions the mobility Not of sacred space, but of sacred vision, mission, and the bulwarks of the spirit-led Christian life. From this vantage point, the church serves as the bridge that brings the priestly, the ministerial, and the familial together. Thus establishing the Pauline paradigm of the body of Christ. And as an extension of that environment, it helps to ensure that, quote, we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness. As a worshiping community of spirit and truth, the church serves as the authoritative frame within which the spiritual and educational constructs of the Word of God are embodied and the fountainhead through which 
biblical interaction, discussion, and education is to be fostered. It is, or the church ought to be, a living classroom where biblical education is enmeshed in the experiential power of the Holy Ghost, where discipleship, as it was in the days of Jesus, responds to the, quote, come and see invitation that promises both knowing and experience. Thus, the church carries with it a distinctive purpose to facilitate, equip, and engage the individual and the family in a more robust understanding of the Word of God that lends toward the immediacy of biblical literacy and transmission. So the first is the family. The second is the church. And the third is the ministry. The remedy for the epidemic of biblical literacy rests heavily upon the workmen charged with the admonition to, quote, rightly divide the word of truth. In this admonition, orthotomeo, rightly dividing, is intentionally brought alongside ergotes, the workman, to provide the metaphorical framework that speaks of a diligent trade, such as masonry or carpentry, that requires exactness and precision. As such, Scripture expressly admonishes the episcopos, the bishop, to be competent and skillful in communicating truth. And as Timothy was admonished by the Apostle Paul, he is to make sure one, quote, hold fast the form of sound words. Simply put, the ministry is meant to, must not engage in an eisegetical gymnastic that rests from Scripture, uh, authorial intent, in order to frame homiletical orations that tickle the untrained ear. Those that engage in such practices handle the Word of God deceitfully a tactic that closely mirrors the subtle cunning of a certain serpent's tongue. It is crucial then that both didasco, teaching, and kirkma, proclamation, are rescued from a subjective postmodern hermeneutic by ensuring, quote, a mutual indwelling of scholarship and spirituality so that our biblical interpretation will be at once the best work of which we are capable of, and more than that, the result of an ongoing divine teaching. I'm talking to myself as a pastor. I owe it to the saints of God that God allows me to win to this truth to make sure I'm giving them a sound, precise, logical, clear what the Bible says. 
That means I've had to apologize personally when I crafted a sermon that was contextually incorrect. So it's crucial that Didasco, teaching and character proclamation, preaching and teaching, are rescued from the subjective postmodern hermeneutic. The clarion call for a clear and comprehensive theology that acts to prevent, on the one hand, reversion to a wooden rationalism, and on the other, an unscriptural extremism. It is desperately needed if one is to confront the woes of biblical literacy and what James K. Smith considers to be the fall of interpretation. Let me hurry. Biblical literacy in the pew owes much to a biblical literacy behind the pulpit. If one is to propagate the straight cutting of biblical exactness, it must be demonstrated and taught by those of us that are charged to preach the word. As the health and the wholeness of the human body depends upon the surgeon's comprehension of his anatomical whole, so also does the body of Christ depend upon the exactness and the precision of those who wield the zao, the living, and energes, active, two-edged sword of God's word. So in conclusion, the lack of comprehensive literature as I was studying was really quite disappointing, but it was a reflection upon the epidemic. As such, sitting in this room today, trying to understand how we can effectively remedy and, and bring about a panacea to the epidemic of biblical illiteracy, the church and the world needs a comprehensive undertaking that sets biblical illiteracy firmly within our sights. The church and the family and the ministry needs to go into overdrive. I love a good sermon, but we need teaching. I love the way that we can weave together. And I'm telling you, I'm the greatest fan of good preaching. But we need men and families, mothers, fathers, preachers, and lay ministers to get in their frame. I have to start putting this at the forefront. Let me just slip this in in closing. That means our youth groups and our youth ministries, if you're a youth pastor... Somewhere along the way, you have to start inserting teaching into your youth stuff. Why? Because we are giving young people this disconnected framework from the Word of God that has nothing but high-octane church and basketball. Look, we cannot be afraid to teach young people. I took, we, took, we started with about six or seven in Bessemer, Alabama. 
and I am not a cool youth pastor. I'm not a good basketball player. But you know what we did? I taught them. We taught the Word of God. And I taught about a move of God. And within two years, we had 70-something in a youth service of community kids. And it was built on teaching and the Word and the power of God. So let me close this out. Indeed, the endurance of a biblical culture that engenders to, quote, hold fast the form of sound words depends upon the galvanization of each of those three divine institutions. To, quote, teach them diligently when thou sittest in thine house. That's why television is such a problem. Something else is teaching. When thou walkest by the way, that was free. And when thou liest down, when thou risest up, and bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and a frontlet between thine eyes. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brother Haddon. Quickly, we have about 30 minutes to take questions because we want to make sure that we remain on schedule this morning for our next presenter. We just want to give you some instructions that will govern our time of Q&A uh, that uh, we want you to just go ahead when you're ready to raise your hand and to wait to be recognized by the moderator. We have runners that's going to bring you the microphone so that you so that we can hear your, your, your critique or your questions. Upon receiving the microphone, please state your name and potentially the organization that you represent, where you're from, and uh, then proceed to your question, your critique, or your review. I'm asking that you take, just make sure that you sharpen your question, make sure that it's well-framed within about 60 seconds. So think about your question first, and then state your question. And we want to make sure that we always do all of this uh, with congeniality as well as decorum. And with that, uh, we're ready for our questions for our presenter this morning. So is there anyone that would have a question today, critique or a review? Right back, Brother Mayo. Pastor Rick Mayo from Spokane, Washington. Reverend Haddon, I would just like to say that that was absolutely excellent in every bit. Absolutely. Tremendous presentation. I couldn't, I couldn't help but take note uh, in the earlier part of your presentation. And could it be posited that the further that a generation gets away from biblical experience, it begins the entropy that will ultimately be between that generation or consecutive generations and the word of God? Thank you. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I would call that generational decay. You know, like things that wear out in a car, batteries that begin to lose its, you know, charge. Absolutely. So biblical experience, I'm sure you mean, is both the ex experiential power of the Spirit along with the facets of the Word of God. And uh, I would say that there can be a generational decay when we, when we tip the scales to just experiential alone. 
And uh, either or, and I've seen it on both sides where I said in the paper, you get either that hyper pharisaical making people twofold more the child of hell or that spirit, that materialistically obese dynamic that is so captured. There has to be an equilibrium that keeps up tension generationally. We have to stay in tension. Yes. Yes, the sister right there. (laughs) Susan Schaefer, Longview, Washington. Um, I don't really have a question. I just have an observation. You know, that's not easy. When we live in a generation that's so easily offended and they consider biblical judgment to be a criminal hate crime. You know, and that could be a good question, just to throw this out there. I, I think if we, if, we, if we present the word of God correctly, um, I, I want to be judged. So I cast that to a lot. I want to be judged. Absolutely. Brother Bo. Thank you, Reverend, for a great presentation. Kenneth Bogue from Lake Taps, Washington. Just a supporting uh, point. I did some uh, reading on Jewish families and they studied GPAs of high school students. They looked for the common denominator of their highest scoring students and ironically it was how often they ate dinner together as a family. That was the single most common denominator of high GPA. There you have it. Absolutely. Can I, can I just throw one thing in to tag that? You know the first book that Jewish children that are Orthodox are required to start learning? Leviticus. Brother Blash. Dan, Daniel Blash from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, my bottom line question is who holds us accountable my broader question is, it's been my experience that institutions do a poor job of holding themselves accountable when it comes to the things they hold dearest. So my question is, who holds us accountable to the information that you've just presented? Well, that's twofold, but the ultimate accountability is, and I would paraphrase, but every word indeed. We are going to be held accountable. Uh, we will be judged by what we hear. So at the end of the day, the, um, the, the framework of, of, of ultimate accountability is going to be God. <laughs> and, uh, but I do think that at some point, and, and this is where I could, it can get a little scratchy, but I, I do believe that a congregation ought to study the word of God in such a way and have a love for the word of God in such a way that unspokenly the ministry is held accountable to a higher standard. And I have seen that. No, no, nobody likes to be wrong and nobody likes to preach a good thought. I'm a preacher. And a good, wonderful saint of God that prays, I, I, just, I thought that scripture meant something else there. I don't, I don't dis- disavow that. I want to hear that. It doesn't mean that they're usurping my authority. And I, again, I know we could cross swords here. But I, I'm not a lord over my church. And we have a synchronized rhythm of give and take. When you preach or teach, it's responding. And, and you know what? There's been many times... 
in my life, going places and hearing, there's times I couldn't respond to the word of God because some of what was being said was grossly inaccurate. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes, right behind Brother Blash there. Yes, ladies first. <laughs> um, Ashley Morrison from Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I have a question um, based on what you what you mentioned earlier. Um, you touched a bit on the ways of reading the Bible in today's generation, how they look through it in um, sound bites, computers, and, yeah. and, and phones, and all the such. Um, I don't know if you recall yesterday's discussion, but there was a brief discussion about people learning differently nowadays and. Uh, the generation being so integrated with technology. Um, and the word of God may be an exception, but do you think that this new way of learning for the newer generations has is a factor to the biblical illiteracy? And if so, would you think that the responsibility of the parents should also include le- understanding how the children learn, whether it's the parents or the teachers? Everybody does learn differently. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I like visual with, uh, like, so can, if I'm a textbook for college, uh, it's hard for me to do e-textbooks because I'm a marginalia person. Um, so there is learning styles, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to throw this out. And some of you may disagree, but I can only give you my experience. I teach 25 uh, drug addicts a week, and uh, it'll move into part of my internship with my master's degree of men that have, I mean, 40-something years old all the way up to 65 that have been lifelong addicts, have ADD, ADHD, and Brother, Brother Blash can tell you, I mean, lifelong drug addicts that, I mean, we're talking about have, have just been you know, bangers in the world with heroin and you name it. There's such a disconnect emotionally. And so I sit across from 40-year-old, 12-year-olds. I really do. And there's no way around it, but I have found that sometimes the way we teach the word of God needs to be Mm re-examined. Instead of finding out how they learn, I've had to re-examine how I'm teaching. And so I'll just give you an idea of something that I do is if I'm going to tell the story of David and Goliath, I step out from that lectern I'm at and I lean into those group of guys that can't pay attention past a minute and I say, imagine I'm drawing them into the narrative mm-hmm. through storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you, I didn't have time to do this, but if I could write another 3,000 words, storytelling was one of the greatest arsenals they had for the propagation of the Word of God. So don't feel like you have to come up with all these amazing PowerPoint designs. And, and I'm sorry, I'm not there, and, and I know that crosses swords with some savants of technology. I'm just telling you right now, an anointed person that prays and fasts and can learn how to slip into where they are, you can get them. You can teach them. Yeah. Just, just an observation with that. Uh, 
Brother Haddon. I, I definitely believe that we need to look at narratives and we need to look at orality and understand that people, again, learn differently today and how the power of orality affected the culture in which the Bible was written and delivered to as opposed to this uh, Western style of rationalization and learning that yes. we have today. We need, we need to recognize that and realize that actually we've kind of come full circle and we're back to this, this narrative and orality thing Perfect. again. It's pretty important. It's yeah. very significant. Yeah. Yes, brother. Uh, Evan Morrison from Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> Sorry, I was waiting for it. Um, and I'm going to kind of track through my thought process leading into my question. And sure. if anything is correct, just correct that. Um, but what I kind of heard from your presentation was that there is a recognition of the responsibility, specifically the responsibility of remembering the word of God um, and remembering it for the future generations. Um, as well as recognizing who holds that responsibility, the, the home, the family, the church, and the ministers. Um, and that there's this shift um, from, shift to the truth representing itself versus the understanding of the individual, which is, again, exemplified by you saying biblical exactness versus interpretation. Um, and I think in that war, um, what was key to me was that you said the equal opportunity to offend or AKA judgment um, being accepted. And my question is on those three levels, the home with the family and the church and ministers, how do you facilitate an acceptance or what are some practical um, tools in thinking about because we are combating lenses and frameworks that have mm -hmm. improperly divided the word of God, how do you facilitate an acceptance of judgment? <laughs> Wonderful question. I, 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 and, I, and I knew when I got this subject, I was going to uh, have the potential to step on toes. And, and when I'm a big man, it does hurt. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to submit that part of the facilitation of that accountability is we are going to have to stop being so political that we feel we have to prop up exegetical error. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody at a conference goes straight into eisegetical interpretation, I don't believe that we ought to be so political that we do not pull that individual aside, elders, brethren, and say, you know, look, at the end of the day, the, the most combative nature of this, and, you know, I'll just throw it all out now. Here it goes, and I may never come back again, <laughs> is egos. We have way too many egos. And it's like, you know, when, when preachers, I talk to myself, you know, we get a thought and we hear somebody else use a little sliver of that thought, we, they stole it from us. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to facilitate accountability on a broad spectrum. It shouldn't be okay for somebody to use scripture. I listened to a, a sermon where they talked about uh, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and they talked about how God gave the tabernacle to a Philistine. No, he's talking about the region he lived in. Well, that's, that undermines a, a very important premise about the sacrospectness of the people of God 
and the sacredness of his space. There's a lot of things that we could talk about. Does that help answer at all? There's a lot of things I could say. Well, I think, I think if, again, we went back to what I believe I told Brother Blash. I do believe that saints need to get more, stop waiting for your pastor to teach you everything in the Bible. Get the Bible out for yourself and start studying. Absolutely. Let's rescue it. Let's rescue biblical illiteracy ourselves in our home. Okay. Let's rescue it. And so there's the other one. And then, and then, of course, we do have to pull it just out of the seminaries. And we need to stop making it such a, a lofty position that the only people... I mean, that's almost going back to clergydom and, and tethering the book to the pulpit. Uh, I told you, I, equal opportunity defender, I'm going to hit them all. Let's, let's just move on before it gets really bad. Sure. <laughs> Sister Blash. Sister Blash, I'm saying those Missouri. I... Uh, I need to give a, an opinion on, you know, I think it's a biblical opinion on this uh, question here about the home and how important it is to sit at the dinner table. Uh, and I think uh, right along with that goes that we as apostolic Pentecostal women need to kind of rediscover the biblical view of womanhood, womanhood yes. uh, of what is our God-given role in the home. And to me, uh, it meant to sacrifice maybe my own career in order to be at home with the children and to embrace that. And, uh, and then the teaching is not so much at an academic level, of course. It's uh, teaching moments that you only have when you spend time with your children and when you embrace um, and embrace that role. It's more than a role. It's an identity. Mm -hmm. and, and part of the identity crisis is, uh, in our world yes. is uh, it's sometimes even it's not really addressed within the body of Christ because something inside a woman always wants to... Okay, and that's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Wants to say, wait a second, I can do this. Mm -hmm. I can have a career and I can be even a preacher. Uh, and, and whether or not, well, wherever you are in the spectrum of your opinion, and I will step on some toes too. I'm also an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> but look at it with an open heart. Lord, ladies, Lord, what is it that you have created me to be to from the very beginning? And based on that, I will make my decisions, discuss it with my husband, and then make the decision, yes. Not only, and, and it's not easy sometimes when you know you could just have this great career and make a lot of money and make a statement, but to say, you know what? God has given me these children. Mm. He's given us these children. And yes, I'm going to, how else am, are we going to have a home-cooked meal sitting at the dinner table? And to have these moments, there's some very practical considerations. Mm. And, and again, the the uh, teaching moments only happen when you know your children and you know their struggles. Yeah, sure. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I, I wrote in here, and, and 
it was it's actually a, uh, a Catholic theologian that wrote it. But he wrote about when your kids are psychologically ready. And, and so what he was referring to is your home life needs to live on the, on the, on, on the margin of always being ready for that moment. And I'm afraid, and, and, and what uh, Sister Blash has brought up, I, I understand, that, again, it can cross some, some deep-rooted, you know, we, we are in a, in a day and an age where feminism is, is taking new heights. And now it's, they're labeling women that stay at home and take care of parents as they're not, you know, they're not empowered. But I do believe we have to have a home that in, engenders teachable moments that are organic. Sure. We're trying sure. to industrialize the teaching. That's what we're trying to do. You know what we're doing? We come home because our home life is so fragmented. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to industrialize the word of God and reproduce it in our kids without organic process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you create clones instead of disciples. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have time for two more questions, I believe. Uh, Brother Walker. Douglas Walker, Ukaipa, California. Uh, Real quick, you made a distinction when you said... I'm a huge fan of preaching, and I, I believe you are, and I am as well. But what is your pushback to, I understand the, method, the methodology between teaching and preaching, but Paul wrote to Timothy and said, preach the word. Sure. Preaching can't be something different. What is your pushback to those who say, well, that's more of a teaching gift, being exegetical or, or being faithful to the text? Shouldn't all preaching be expositional, and what's your pushback on that? I believe all preaching ought to be expositional, but unfortunately it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, I I believe that we are living in a generational uh, heirs to a fashion of preaching that is more concerned... Don't don't get me wrong, I I love hermeneutic. I I do, I, I love the lens of of hermeneutics and all this taught. But at the end of the day, a lot of times our messages are becoming becoming processes of interpretation rather than a straight cutting of the word of God. And and so uh, there's a big argument between that Kirchma Mm -hmm. proclamation and the Didasco, the teaching. And, And I'm aware of that. And time would not suffice. I do believe we have hurt ourselves by delineating the differences to the to the degree we have, to where we have now good preachers and good teachers, mm-hmm. and there's no middle ground between the two, mm-hmm. and so you get men that accept I'm just a teacher, and it's almost today a uh, this is my lot in life, I'll never be a conference preacher, mm-hmm. and yet some of the most established churches are not by what you call the uh, the oratory gregarious natures of just uh, or orators. So I think what we've done with preaching is we've made it more about oratory style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd say let's rescue it from that. Mm-hmm. All preaching. But I, there is, I believe, a difference in Scripture between the Didasco and the Kirgma. I do believe there is a difference. There's, you know, edifying building up within the framework of the fivefold ministry. A lot of that is going to fall in foundational epistle-like fashion like the Apostle Paul wrote. And yet, the book of Hebrews is almost like a sermon. I believe my uh, brother Young, Dr. Young, said that one time. The book of Hebrews is like preaching. So, 
I, I hope that helps. Uh, uh, thanks for throwing that real convoluted question at me because that's tough. <laughs> yes, quickly, we have time for one more question very, very quickly. If you could just state that real quickly for us. Yeah, my name is Leon Peltier, and I want to ask you one question. You said something about ego. Now, could you give me the definition of that word? Brother Blash? Now, now somebody, this is what somebody told me. This is what somebody told me. They said, ease God out. That's the, I heard that definition. Is that? Lovers of self. Ego is a big deal. Let's just put it that way. Humility would not hurt our movement very much. It, It would not hurt us. Absolutely. Brother Haddon, I have one last question that I'll, I'll, I'll frame from the podium here. I notice on page 43 that you speak of the natural rhythm of life. It appears to me that you are borrowing terms from the monastic tradition and spiritual disciplines. Are you suggesting the practice of spiritual disciplines and the keeping of a daily office? Am I suggesting the practice of daily spiritual disciplines? As in... Lectio Divina, Meditatio Oratio. <laughs> That's exactly well, the reason why I ask it is that you are borrowing from monastic tradition terminology. Brother Wilson, where are you? <laughs> he got it. Thank you. What we'll do is we'll take five minutes break and we'll be promptly back at 1030. 1030. At- 10.30, that's five, about five or six minutes. Make sure you're right back. We're going to start right on time.